Hi, Matt. Hey, Serena. <laughs> Welcome to um, the Earth Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons, the senior producer on the show and our guest producer slash pretty much the reason we're here. Matt Podolsky, you want to say hi? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is our guest producer today on the show, which is super exciting. He's back on his own podcast, and longtime listeners of the show will remember um, really, really good episodes that Matt has produced. I love Matt's interview style, just the way that he, um, you know, can create a really dynamic conversation with his subjects. And um, this interview today is super, super exciting and awesome. Um, so do you want to just kind of like catch us up on maybe what you've been up to, Matt? And, you know, we had our awesome roundtable last episode where we're kind of recapping the last several months and talking politics and the insurrection. And we've got a new administration. And I know you've got some projects on deck that you've been working on. So a lot happening, huh? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the projects I've been focusing a lot of my energy on is this this other podcast series, Common Land, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners of Earth to Humans have checked out, I hope. We've shared a few episodes on our feed here. Um, and yeah, today's interview is sort of, an, um, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just give a quick introduction um, to our guest uh, to start things off. So today's guest is Mark David Spence who is an author and a historian. Um, he wrote a book called Dispossessing the Wilderness, um, which actually was published uh, over 20 years ago, um, which, which is really amazing considering like, like the, the content of, of what is, is in this book. The book follows the history of the creation of three of our country's first national parks. So Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Glacier National Parks. Um, but he explores this parallel history of Native American dispossession from those lands um, in the book and sort of shows how the history of the reservation system is intertwined with the history of the National Park Service. Um, and so this book uh, I read uh last summer as I was sort of trying to wrap my mind around like where I was going to take the, the Common Land series next. Um, and the book really inspired me to, to uh, uh, go down this path uh, of research, exploring the origin of like our current conception of protected land, uh, which, you know, begins like in a lot of ways uh, with Yosemite National Park. And so that was sort of my introduction to, to Mark David Spence was, you know, as the author of this like amazing sort of historical resource uh, that inspired me to to dive much, much deeper into the history of the Park Service and what went on in Yosemite National Park specifically, and to also just focus in on these stories of uh, Native American dispossession from these lands Anyways, okay, one sec. We're in the middle right now, so show it to me when I come out, all right? Yeah. Thanks. We've got Matt, who's got uh, kiddos learning about climate change going on in the background. <laughs> yes, there are frequent uh, interruptions here <laughs> um, since uh, my kid is doing remote learning, and he's working on a climate change project right now, so... 
Yeah, no, it's all, and we're, we've been talking, you know, maybe making an episode out of that. So I'm, yeah, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the education system and climate change, maybe the yeah. episode. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, com- Common Land is such a, such a, an exciting project. Um, and it's, and it's, it's sad that this book was written, you know, over 20 years ago and, here we are in 2021, you know, sort of like unveiling the same issues and, you know, like these very deep old issues that still exist and are still present and still, you know, showing themselves. And that's unfortunate, but it's great that we now have additional resources, right? You know, so like the activism that's happening, um, you know, repatriation that's happening, um, reparations that are happening, conversations that are happening. I think, you know, there's just more of an appetite for um, making things right now, I'd like to think, but we still have a long way to go, right? Absolutely, right? And and it is, I mean, that's one of the interesting aspects of Mark's book is that he wrote it over 20 years ago and you know for for most folks like uh, like so many people are are just being introduced to um these ideas and this history now um uh, despite the fact that this information has been out there and and, and available for for quite a long time uh, but you know that's one of the interesting things that that mark talks about in the interview is how he has found a new audience um, for this book and, and, the, and the content and, and the history that he put into it now um, and how he is how he's influencing this new young generation of activists. Well, I'm really excited about this conversation. I think our listeners are going to absolutely be totally engaged with it. Um, and I'm excited to read his book. Uh, my name is Mark David Spence. I'm an historian of, I guess, multiple overlapping subjects, uh, indigenous history, environmental history, uh, history of the American West, uh, and sort of, I guess, North American environmental history more broadly. So I was born in, born in Santa, grew up in Santa Cruz County, uh, went to California schools from kindergarten to PhD. Um, but my family, my da- dad's family is from Oregon, where, where I live now, and have been here since the, before the Oregon Trail. They were Métis fur traders, traders and trappers who were sent, uh, sent to Oregon from, they were sent to Oregon by the Hudson's Bay Company, which uh, there's a big facility up near Portland, which is where they were sort of based for a little while and then, and then moved on. So I'm kind of in like three layers of home in, in a way by being in Oregon. So, I, I mean, I'm curious about like the the origin of your your research and, and, and history based interests. Can you kind of like trace those interests to their origin? When I was, so I'm the youngest of five, and my father did not grow up with his father. He didn't know his father after the age of four and a half or five. But when he was thirty and I was born, his father reached out to him and he met his father, who was living up in the Portland area. And my dad had memories of a child going out to Eastern Oregon, Baker County area. So very actually, you know, quite close to you. And uh, actually a tiny town called Haynes, which is just outside of Baker City, about eight miles. 
his grandparents had property and um, every summer or not every summer, probably every late spring or, and, uh, or, or early fall, groups of Paiute from um, you know, South Central Oregon would come and fish. And that was kind of news to me when I learned it. I said, I did not realize that the Paiute were sort of fishing out on the, uh, out on the Columbia, on the upper Columbia or the snake, but they, but they did. A friend of mine confirmed, yeah, that's, that's been going on for thousands of years. So he, he would sort of hang out in that encampment and that, that enthralled him as a, as a child. He subsequently learned from his father, he said, you know, we're actually native ancestry. So my dad learned some stuff. I've subsequently pieced together that there's like Spence's on the Nez Perce Reservation, the Yakima, and uh, also Fort Colville, way up in uh, Northeastern Washington. So he kind of came back a born again Indian when he was 30 years old. And I was the most impressionable child and I just sucked it up. Um, and the weird thing is I spent, until I went to college, the first blanket I remember in the bed I owned, I was under a woven blanket. And, and, and there was like this native artwork that he'd gotten from his dad around my room. And so it's like, that was the iconography literally that I went to sleep to. the United States and went to a hell of a lot of national parks all over the United States for about four months or but I started bumping into national parks in Taiwan um, learned enough Chinese to to get around China as well China had national parks uh, the Netherlands had a weird national fun, funny national park which is just a, a heath with bunnies and a really good Van Gogh museum and I thought okay that that counts the national park so I knew finally when I got to grad school, which started in 91, that I wanted to be doing something called environmental. I'd never heard of environmental history, but I knew I wanted that to be a protagonist in, in what I did. And I also wanted, I knew I wanted to do indigenous history. And it's, it's sort of, it's, so coming to the issue has a lot to do with background. So that's why that went on too long. But it also has a lot to recognizing in China, in Taiwan, in, in all these various places, uh, even in the Soviet Union, national is the most important word in the phrase national park. They basically are supposed to be idealistic manifestations or, or mirrors of national character or, or national might or the blessings of the divine to give us this remarkable scenery so that we can be refreshed and uh, and be uh, and connected with each other. I remember like wandering through the sixth floor of the library at UCLA going, I know, I know native peoples were, I know native peoples were removed. I have to find a document that proves that. I was walking along and I saw this very large book on a table because I was in the right sort of, uh, you know, call number area of the library. And I picked it up, I opened it 
and it was George Grinnell talking about the Blackfeet. And, and I thought, shit, this is real. This is for realsy, real, real, real. Away we go. It's like a thick miasma is where this came from. I wasn't destined to it. Learned tons, 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 and tons. Had a lot of cool experiences, but one guy on the Crow Reservation, his name's Mick Old Coyote, he basically said, we need to start with the creation story because that's where it all begins. And he just sort of sat me down, talked me through the purpose and point of, of sweats. You don't come and ask, you come and listen and you listen for a really long time and, um, and you need to hear our voices in it. And that was just, that was probably the first reservation I went to. And so I was able to carry those lessons uh, on. The true history of what happened in these first national parks is, is like so different than the story that that we tell at, ourselves and each other as Americans, right? Um, in the mainstream, and I'm, I'm constantly every time I think about it, I'm just baffled that this like mainstream attitude towards national parks hasn't gone away. But for you, like unpeeling these layers and kind of figuring it out as you went through the process, like what what was that like from like a, a, a personal perspective. So the first archival research I did, because I was living in, I was living in Santa Barbara probably at the time, was um, Yosemite. And so I went up to Yosemite and the archivist did not want me to access stuff. There was, there was some stuff they didn't retrieve or wouldn't retrieve saying it had, you know, you know, it had, uh, you know, personal information. I'm like, personal information from the 1930s is not very... You know, who, who, you know, who am I going to expose? That was really surprising to me. I got lucky at Glacier because the archivist wasn't there and the substitute archivist was. And she said, I'm not so sure I can let you look at this stuff. And, and I said, well, you know, I've looked at it other places. And she said, okay. And I was just left in the room, um, you know, by, by myself. And so, but if I was a week earlier, I probably wouldn't have. And, um, but Yellowstone was the worst, absolute worst. There was a sort of librarian archivist named Lee Whittlesey, and I think he's finally retired, and kind of another volunteer semi-paid historian on staff. And they just sort of ruled the whole archive area. And they were, they made it known instantly. They hated my approach. They, they thought, you can't do this. You don't piss on God. You just don't. And it was, I mean, that was literally the attitude I had and or had, that I was receiving. I wasn't putting it off at all. I didn't back down, but I wasn't saying, no, you guys are old and dumb and, and should get out of the way. But it was, and, um, oh gosh, the first October when I was a, a new professor, October 97, Yellowstone had a big conference about it was like some anniversary or something like that. And I was invited. Basically all the classic mighty environmental uh, writers um, were there and a couple of them just laid into me. It's like how, it's as if, it's literally as if I tried to tear the dress off of, you know, Jesus's mother, Mary, you know, it's like, I mean, literally, it's like, you can't, you can't look at the undergarments of the national parks because that doesn't look good, even though they're divine. I never had, you know, in, in native peoples, I had very great conversations, you know, personal, substantive and the like. 
but they never viewed me as their hero or a punk or anything like that. It was just like, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's how it was. This is how it happened. It's like, yeah, you're right, but it, it was a little more like this. So they never thought I was intrusive. The NPS people always thought I was intrusive. I will say one last thing, and that was when I was in grad school, I thought, if it doesn't have public efficacy, what's the point? And so that that was probably the guiding principle. If this is just an exercise in historiography or or one-upping somebody with a, with high vocabulary, it's like I can't I can't think of any a more boring or useless thing to do with my life. The book that we're talking about, Dispossessing the Wilderness, you published was published in 1999, correct? Yeah. What is the controversy embedded within your research and like what you put out there when you published your book? You don't tug on Superman's cape and you don't touch the third rail of race. Because if you do, I'm gonna find out I'm a racist and I really don't wanna be a racist. National parks are intrinsically good, inherently good. They are the creation of the best people who ever lived. They represent the eternal past for our eternal future. So it was all of that. These are, this, is the, this is the iconography. These are, especially for, for the conservation crew, for the outdoors type people. It's like, I go there, I feel the divine. There's nothing bigger, better, or more important than encountering divinity um, and, 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 in, and, in, and in imbibing it. And my rejoinder in my mind, not articulated at the time, is there's nothing more vile than claiming other people's space and in the process of denigrating their conception of the divine, the materials that have, that have fed them, that have constructed their thinking, that have shaped their communities, that they have been willing for 150 years to be terribly impoverished and utterly marginalized, but will refuse to leave this place or will refuse to leave their homeland, um, portions of which contain national, a national park unit. The, the Ken Burns documentary about the national park system, you know, like which promoted it as America's best idea, like came out after your book was published. Right. So it's like 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 he had, you know, here's the most famous like history documentarian, like probably ever. I've gone back and like watched through the segments of that documentary that cover like Yosemite and Yellowstone recently after reading your book. And I'm just like. How do you rationalize that when the information is so readily available, you know? To me, the whitest man in the world when it comes to appreciating jazz, that's Ken Burns. <laughs> he doesn't really get it. Um, I cannot watch anything he does. And Ken Burns, they never, con they contacted me like two weeks before they finished the project. They wanted me to find them a picture of George Bird Grinnell. And I'm like, no way, <laughs> you can't. Like, you know, I've been writing on this and you know, I've been criticizing Dayton Duncan the whole time. And you, and it's just like, and you know, I have a totally different interpretation. They wouldn't talk to me for, for the same reasons. It was so bizarre. And it's, I can't, I have used clips of his films in my, in courses and the, the Lewis and Clark one in particular at one point. And uh, 
my students laugh when Dayton Duncan cries. And I'm like, going, okay, have I, <laughs> I over-informed them? And I'm thinking, no, they're just pretty astute. I mean, because what Dayton Duncan is crying about is not, is not actually sad. <laughs> Like a huge vendetta for Ken <laughs> I get it. <laughs> History is this fluid thing, and it's sort of an interesting reminder from the perspective of a researcher that, like, history can always be uncovered and, like, is can be changed as we learn more information. Um, and so, like, the investigative element of you know, the conversation was really interesting to me and like that he was getting so much resistance from the archivists. You have individuals with their own agendas um, that can control who gets this information and how much of it they can access. And so the people that are, you know, keeping this history um, in theory for exactly Mark's purposes, you know, are actually the ones that are blocking and and, and perpetuating this cycle of misinformation and disinformation. Right, totally. But it's also like it, a lot of it is institutional as well, right? It's like those individuals, those archivists that, you know, were refusing to share certain documents with Mark when he was in his research stage. I mean, they're a part of this like much larger institutional system that very much does not want that message or that information to get out, right? It's like anything that, you know, it's like what we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, during our roundtable two weeks ago about American exceptionalism, right? Like any, like, historic story thread that takes us down this, that, like, paints the U.S. government and its institutions in a negative light is, you know, like the people that work for those institutions are strongly disincentivized from painting that negative picture. folks that grew up with a background similar to mine, like, you know, white middle-class Americans, especially for folks who like work in environmentalism, like myself, it's like, you know, in order to like get to a point where you can have a career in any environmental field, like you're steeped in John Muir and Thoreau and Leopold. When you find out the, the, the other side of it, it's like catastrophic to like your worldview. The Park Service, this is what I was thinking when I was listening to you, they're doing, a, they are consulting with Native peoples in sort of natural resource management. And, and there's a few little parks where Native peoples are sort of helping to restore food plants or, or medicinal plants, things with tinctures or, or also things with dyes in them and things like that. But at this point, one of the fundamental problems with the Park Service isn't even the intentions of people. It's the proprietary nature of the Park Service. And I was reading 
some legal stuff I was never aware of, but the Park Service, it basically has the same degree of ownership that the military has over any land. It's, you know, over any of its bases. Basically, the Park Service and the military have 10 tenths of the law when it comes to controlling what goes on within those boundaries. That's one problem. The other problem is they're, they're just like the military. Everyone is moving around all the time. And the, and the only reason you move is because you want a promotion or you don't like your boss, but that's, they're moving and moving all the time. So strangely, like the military, the NPS is probably what would be the second most placeless bureaucracy in the entire, you know, in the entire nation, which is really strange when they're constantly trumpeting uh, the unique characteristics and sanctity of particular places. They just, they move through a system they do not, they, they never become local to the places. And, um, which is very hard, you know, it's very, very hard. I, you know, if you grew, I grew up in a very small town and when the people from the big city came in and said, why don't you do this? It's like, we can't, but you could move here and do it, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, so it's just, it's this, it's kind of this bossy pants agency in a way. Um, and that hasn't gone away. That's been around for a long time, but it still lingers. It's softening, but it lingers. And I, I feel like this is a question you probably get, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious how you respond to it. And it's like a question that I've been starting to get as I start to let, just talk to people informally about like this project that, that I'm involved with surrounding Yosemite and like examining the history of protected places. I'll sort of explain the context of the project and explain how I'm trying to sort of like reframe like the history of parks and, and protected land. And I think if you've never heard any of that stuff, it, it sounds super, it, it sounds really extreme, right? It's like, hey, like you think national parks are the greatest thing ever. Like they're, you know, America's best idea, right? And I'm telling you that no, actually really like horrific things happens to other people. Like in order to establish these protected places, right? Dispossession of Native Americans, you know, in California, this was all happening when there was a, a genocide going on. It's intense stuff. And people's reaction is often, how could you let go of how great national parks are? There's like this idea of, you're saying that we should just turn the national parks back over to the Native Americans. No, like this is just information that informs how we move forward, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, so I don't know. I'm just curious what that has looked like from your perspective, like given that you published this book at a time when, you know, this was like more controversial than it is now. So the, a couple a couple things come to mind. And one is Native peoples have always been playing the long game and um, which is more directional than it is destination oriented. And how can we have more autonomy? How can we exercise fuller sovereignty? Um, how can we recover things that we haven't seen for a few generations? You know, these, those, those become the driving answers, but, but the riddle with a, with a national park and, and, and this, this issue is, um, plagues the Yosemite's efforts to become federally recognized that because there are other tribal nations that that have associations with with that part of the Sierras and um, so if one tribe said we're going to get Yosemite that's just going to be another can of worms for a few generations and uh, and, and nobody wants that the closest um, clear 
sort of uh, claim I can think of you know, right off the bat would be the Blackfeet on the east side of Glacier and then down into the uh, Badger Two Medicine area as well. Clearly, historically and long before that, everybody recognizes that as their territory. In a place like Redwood National and State Parks, which is an odd, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird hydra-headed um, map, but there's multiple groups there. The Yurok are the largest. Um, they have the largest potential reservation. The boundaries were drawn in 1864, but never fully acknowledged. And so they're kind of the big dog when it comes to native peoples getting, getting to the front of a particular line. Um, but they don't want the whole park because they know that they know their neighbors who um, at least half of whom speak in the same language family as they do. But it's, on another level, there's, there's a lot of kind of simple solutions in a way, like, you know, indigenous women hike. I think we talked about this before, I might've mentioned it before, and it's just, think of the cultural tropes, it just inverts. It's like native people don't hike, um, women don't hike. And, you know, why would you go on the John Muir Trail? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't, don't you have more important impoverished things to do than, than sort of go hiking, you know, somewhere in the, in the Southern Sierras? And, and these are Paiute women, Southern Paiute. They're going in and sort of telling each other the stories of the landscapes that they had learned. It's like, well, that's Mount such and such. And then if, you know, and if it's actually like Mount McLaughlin or something, they'll say, oh, that, that was the guy that killed the so-and-sos. But for them, you could say it's spiritual, you could say it's historical, you could say it's recreational, but it's about fellowship and a sense of, I, I can't speak for them, but, but I would say it's a sense of belonging to you and in this landscape. And the better you know it, the more it feels like home. Um, anybody doing, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail, it's like self-torture, you know, you sort of, it's like a Sundance, you know, you start, you, you just start tearing yourself down and you get to this absolutely elemental place. And I've certainly been there, but I didn't have to, you know, hike three mountain ranges to do it. Um, but that's not what they're doing. They're not, you know, they're not beating themselves down. They're, um, they're, uh, they're resituating themselves in their homeland and by hiking and talking about it. There's a, uh, there, there are a lot of things like that. Just, just sort of being able to reclaim certain, certain properties, tearing down the, uh, tearing down the dam on at Olympic National Park was, you know, is a, is a huge, huge deal. And it's just a dam, not a super big dam, but it's a huge deal because it basically takes, I don't know, 95 years of riparian constipation and saying, guess what? This river is going to flow for another 10,000 years. And, uh, and so that's what makes it a huge deal. Um, and, and, and I know that my descendants will be here, uh, you know, working that river. So, um, so it's, sometimes you don't have to turn it all over. But, but those little things I'm talking about, I mean, they're happening all over right now. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's below seismic. It's like they're not registering yet on, you know, on sort of the, the indicator, you know, the, the indicators we, that we would otherwise uh, keep tabs on. I'm curious about like the consulting work that you're doing. You gave examples of some of the history projects that you're, that you're doing, that you're contracted to do with these different parks. I'm sure you're not glossing over any aspects of the history that you're being contracted to like 
write about. What do park folks, like, what is their response? And like, are there, like, do you feel like there are people working in some of these parks that really want to like get this information out there and really want to shift this overall like mainstream attitude that we have towards parks? I think they want to enlarge their understanding. Um, I don't, and I don't know that, you know, I don't think they feel like they're at a place in time now that then being exposed to what I report will, will bring them to the place, will bring them to the knowledge level that they want. I think they, they want more than that even. Redwood was the place I had the pushback from, from the top, from the superintendent. It's probably 06, probably when I first got there. He was mad at me. It's like, why the hell are you talking about? You know, this is about our heroes who went in and took cut, cut over lands and re-engineered a watershed and, and that, that within X number of hundreds of years will be a special place. I go, that's, that's a remarkable story. But these are other people's homelands. And he was like going, homeland, schmomeland. I mean, just, he wanted nothing to do with me. Turns out he had a bad rep throughout the whole um, system. And, but I went ahead and, and wrote it. I was, he was not my supervisor. One thing that just blew me away as I, I was coming across all these efforts that the Save the Redwoods League is doing up there. And they were almost, you know, virulently anti-Indian, anti especially up in the park area. You know, the Yurok, they just want to screw everything up. They just want to, they just want to fish out the, the Klamath River. All they ever wanted to do was build a plaque for someone that gave a ton of money to send a, to save a grove. And, um, and they're not that, I mean, they're, they just leapfrogged, you know, 20 years ahead of the Sierra Club. I don't know how or why they did it. Because that was like the most ossified uh, environmental conservation group in the whole whole nation, but not anymore. I mean, they're just plowing money into native-led environmental restoration, which is also to say cultural restoration. They've been restoring, you know, sort of like weasel-type animals. I can't remember what they're called. They're restoring condors to the area. They're helping restore fisheries, a whole lot of riparian habitat. So the cool thing is native peoples are really driving stuff a lot more. Uh, so the second project I did was Wind Cave National Park, which is very, very controversial uh, within the, among the Lakota, some, every hole, you know, any sort of important hole in the ground is sort of a, a, a transition point between levels in the universe. The point is the belief system is still intact and it just, it's, it's a question of cultural transference as opposed to this, you know, an incessant demand that what I say has always been true um, and, and we were the first it's like and for me I'm happy to I can live in the in-between area it's like the divinity of the place this is an eruption of the sacred in the world can't deny it its significance to you can't deny it and it would have similar significance to all the other people that preceded you so there's this is a direct line of you know the deed is, is, is intact throughout the entire period. So I never get frustrated about that. Once I finished Wind Cave, all the projects I did after that, my reputation preceded me. I was allowed to do whatever the hell I wanted. And, um, and it was the last one I finished was Fort Union Trading Post, which is basically, um, it's just sort of been Chaps and Spurs history. It was a big trading post in, um, on the, Yellowstone, Missouri River confluence right at the Montana, North Dakota boundary. And I ran, basically I got selfish because um, 
I placed it in its broader global commercial context, but I placed it mainly in the region. And I said, guess what? This is gonna be a regional history. It's, and the region is called the borderlands of the United States and Canada. This is not about the US. This is sort of about the fur trade writ large. And guess what? My ancestors worked at Fort Union and they worked in Canada. <laughs> and, and so I didn't write my family into this at all, but it just said, this is gonna be about Métis people. This is about Fort Union inside of a world that's primarily Métis and is primarily oriented towards competing with British Canada. And so they were fine with that. They were, they were totally fine. No one had a problem with that at all. And um, they just sort of figure, it's like hiring an architect. We hire you because of the, because of the way you conceptualize certain things. And so that's, that's where I finally got to, like in the last couple projects I did. So, and I, I, don't mean, I, I don't mean that as a brag, I just mean that there's like no, literally no pushback from, from the park service because I'm just dealing with a supervisor sort of in the cultural resources chain of command. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you've like heard anything about the decision that the Biden administration made about Deb Hollins becoming the new Secretary of the Interior. Any like attitudes or perspectives like from, from within the Park Service or like? No, just my sort of my academic uh, friends, uh, you know, who deal with public lands and things like that. Everybody was, and, and, and Native peoples, everybody was thrilled. Um, she's really smart. And um, she strikes me as the kind of person with, with so much integrity that she'll rub people wrong you know, unintentionally. No, it's like, it's so, it's so weird how, I don't know why I'm saying this, but it's still, to me, it's so weird how, I guess, I, I guess it's like, I think it's an essential symptom in the United States, especially among white people, but also non-white people of, I don't know what to make of Indians. They're kind of, it's like, I don't even know what to say around them because I'll probably say something wrong. You know, that people sort of have this interior monologue. It's certainly in the park service. They have that. It's like, Oh man, I, I shoot. I said the word Indian. I should have, I meant to say indigenous. And, you know, so I think, you know, some people probably were, you know, withholding any comment about her because they didn't know, didn't know anything about her, but it's like, well, I don't want to say anything about Indian if I don't even know the person. I thought it was a cool pick. It was a really, I think it was a really good pick. Um, and it's not just sort of checking boxes, woman, indigenous. Because the truth is, if you want a very powerful indigenous person to be representing what you're doing, she is who you want. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by it. And, um, but yeah, people are so, you know, it's, you know, I mean, you look on the screen right now, I'm like, as I'm as pale as a clown and, you know, a marionette clown or something. But when people, you know, I do identify as indigenous, I identify as Métis and people are like, oh, well, shit, now I don't know what to say around him. <laughs> it's like, well, just tell me you don't, just tell me you think the Cleveland Indians is a bad idea. And I think, and I think we're, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Right. I mean, it's, uh, there's definitely, like, I feel that anxiety, you know, like, I, you know, like, I, I don't think that's bad. Like, I think that's like, I, I should be cautious about saying the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Like we, and it's like, it, it when we live in, 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 in a society that has 
so many institutions that are based in this like deeply racist white supremacist past and bureaucratic system i i feel like at any point i could learn that something that i was taught as a kid like actually is you know rooted in a deeply racist belief or system that i didn't even know about i feel like i'm constantly like relearning the history that i thought i knew i you know i had stumbled in conversations uh you know when i when i was on different reservations and um one guy was this ancient man. I mean, he was he was he was as old as as an old Oakland. I think it was Mike Swimsunder was his name. And as I was like one of the, I don't think he lived more than like six months after I saw him. But I went in and he had like all these feathers and wings and like all these ceremonial things. And I just like kind of commented on him, and he just kind of gave me a shrug response. And I'm realizing, wow, way out of my depth. I mean, this is like, I just I've. I grew up Catholic. It's like, it's sort of like going to the room behind the altar where they have all their clothes and, and, and all their special stuff. And it's just like, this is really cool. You know, it's like, <laughs> so everyone, everyone does it. Um, but I think we're careful about it because it's the, along with slavery, it's the original sin. Um, yeah, native dis dispossession, genocide, insufficient medicine, for, you know, for people that you've forced to march hundreds of miles, I'm not just talking to Cherokee, sort of all these people were marched somewhere in, in winter and hungry times, true for the show band even. Um, but the most time I've had sort of mutually laughing with people have been with native peoples and uh, usually ones that are very accustomed to dealing with, with, you know, people outside. But, you know, if you, if you meet, if you, uh, my advice, and I, I shouldn't be offering advice, but if you were, if, you know, if you were to meet sort of some native person that, that you had a reason to have a conversation with, think of it as like, well, you just saw, you just met somebody at the bar. Turns out you both like the same label of beer and you're off. And that's like that, you know, and you don't have to navigate it anymore. And, you know, the more native people you meet, the less likely you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna view a native person as a resource for understanding native people. Um, anyway, so this is uh, I'm sure if anyone has to listen to this, it's gonna be utterly riveting. <laughs> <laughs> Needs a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I'll do some editing, like put some musical interludes in there. Or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could just sort of get the soundtrack from the first first or second alien movie just <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's great that's a great idea i like that Commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. 
signing off. Well, that was my interview with author and historian Mark David Spence. If you'd like to learn more about Mark's work and where you can get a copy of his book, Dispossessing the Wilderness, you can head over to our show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org eth221. If you'd like to hear bonus content from today's episode, you can join our Patreon campaign for the show. By joining the campaign with a small recurring donation, you are providing the resources that allow us to keep bringing you important conversations like today's episode with Mark David Spence. Check out the link on the show notes page or go to patreon.com slash wildlenscollective. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Our senior producer is Serena Simons, and today's episode was produced by me, your host, Matt Podolsky. Music in today's episode comes from the Idaho Songs Project.